0: In most of our minds, the places we call home are part of what defines us. We are bound to the lands in some sort of unusual but completely rational sense of pride and it is these places that are used to judge or explain our behaviors in some cases we drive through other places that hold precious memories for someone and hardly pass a second glance and we drive around a town complaining about traffic without a clue of what the history had occurred there today is an interesting uh, deviation from the regular tales of wars shifting royal landscapes and the like today we are discussing the history of some of the places i hold near and dear to my heart the history of the places i've called home In this New Year's episode of the Remedial Scholar. That's ancient history. I feel I was denied. Critical need to know information belongs in (laughs) a museum. Stop skipping your remedial class. Hello and happy new year everyone. Thank you for joining me. This is The Remedial Scholar and I am your host Levi. I hope this episode is not too out of the weeds for you all. I think it's a fun idea. One of the listeners, Hannah, suggested an idea of an episode on the history of the places that I have lived and I feel like it's a good opportunity to learn a bit about me as well as just a general idea of the places around our country and so on. The general idea to do an episode in this manner is something that I have seen done on a few different podcasts that I listen to and while I could do a wrap-up there's just not an entire year to look back on and work with so I decided to do this in a jace adjacent kind of style so before I get too far along the inevitable housekeeping affairs as always don't forget to share the show wherever possible check out the social media links as well if you feel so inclined you can also find the merch store in the description as well if you want to support the show without spending any money reviews and sharing are the best ways to do that and that's it so back into it i listen to a few different podcasts that are topical in nature and they do a standard year end wrap up and like I said there's not a whole year for me to wrap up yet and I wanted to do something that would enable you all to kind of know me a little bit better but also not boasting about myself specifically so I'm going to go through the places I have lived that i have lived specifically longer than a year granted it's not that many places which might be good news for you but they are mostly different states so that balances it out so I'm going to be giving a basic overview of what that state's history was and then including the places I've lived. Uh, I mentioned that I'm limiting it to places I've lived in over a year because I have bounced around in some places whether it was due to my navy days or just following jobs and I feel like those places don't necessarily define me as the places that I've spent any reasonable time. I'm kind of limiting this to places that I've gotten license plates for a vehicle in like essentially i think this episode would be significantly more interesting if i was european because of how far back some of the history can go for those places but then again odds are i could have just lived in a boring place there so you never know. Either way, I'm going to be doing these places in chronological order from when I had lived there, so it's going to be a little bit odd, but oddly enough, the states will be in alphabetical order for the most part, so that's kind of kind of neat how that worked out. With all that ahead of us, let us journey to the past to the places I have called home. This may not be a surprise to you, for those of you who have known me, but I was born in the town of Kearney, Nebraska. I had brought this up in the Donner Party episode as one of the people leading the search party is the namesake for this place. Nebraska, or as everyone I met outside of the state would say, Nebraska is not one of the newest states by any means, but it's also not super duper old. The formation of Nebraska is actually kind of interesting in regards to how it changed the landscape of politics within our country. The land which would make up Nebraska in the future was part of the louisiana purchase and before that was french spanish and unowned much further back nebraska was underwater and home to the goddamn loch ness monster seriously during the cretaceous period Plesiosaurus was uh one of several prehistoric beasts that lived in the region definitely not the history i thought i was going to be going to share but i saw bleeding plesiosaur and saw red and i don't know what to tell you (laughs) uh the actual geography of the state is actually surprising if you know where to go obviously if you have driven along interstate 80 for any stretch you might believe that i'm filling your head full of flies right now but that is not the case yes while the southern central section of the state features some rolling hills and miles and miles and miles and miles of cornfields the bulk of the state consists of grasslands reminiscent of something you'd see on like little house of the prairie with the sand hills in the northwest The eastern soil near Omaha, saturated by the Missouri River, very fertile and also you know great farmland. That's why there are so many cornfields along that way. But the rocky section of the Panhandle, which is like I call it Wyoming Junior, (laughs) uh, it's very different than what you'd see on the interstate. You you know you have to get off the interstate to go see it. These landscapes include iconic buttes and the famous Chimney Rock, decorating the otherwise flatlands chimney rock very I have some very core memories going to see that as a very tiny child <laughs> and it's sad because you know natural causes uh, the wind is just beating down this thing slowly and slowly it used to be much more of a peak on this rock than it is now but over the years just eroding away because of the wind which i mean that's nature but it is pretty sad then there's the beauty of the Niobrara near valentine nebraska where the winding river is a beacon to summertime tourists who tube down while the sun bakes away their troubles that the beard doesn't wash away smith falls in this area is also very quite nice uh, definitely not a place that somebody thinks about when they think of new Nebraska. If you asked somebody who's never been there or only been on the interstate where the waterfalls in Nebraska are, they would laugh at you probably, so do with that information what you will. (laughs) Of course, before European settlers arrived on the shores of North America, Native Americans were the primary residents of the land of flat water, and that is where the name stems from. The Oto tribe had a word for this place, which was Nebraska, which means land of flat waters. This word is also how the primary river of the state got its name as well. In the mid-1800s, a mapping expedition occurred, which john c fremont used the french word for flat which is plat he was inspired by the oto word and the rest is history i like names uh i like that the names of so many places are a blend of french english native languages like i think it just shows how unique our country is and also how much more unique it could have been had they decided to integrate some of these cultures together instead of trying to like suppress them or to erase them and it <laughs> not to get too political but it is quite interesting. the div- the The diverse geography also lends itself to having a div- diverse group of native tribes that inhabited the region, which were the Lakota in the north and west, Arapaho in the west, the Cheyenne in the west, the Pawnee in the central part of the state, Omaha in the east, uh, Ponca in the north, Winnebago in the east, and the Sioux in the north northwestish. I say ish because generally they moved around, and we also kicked them out of a lot of places. So. There may be some missing but it seems like every map is slightly different so those are those are like the big ones that kept popping up of course we know that the french sold the united states the louisiana territory in 1803 for a cool 15 mil and for some reason i don't know why this is i'm pretty sure i was never actually taught this but for the longest time I just assumed it was like for a hundred dollars and I don't know why that is so if you went to school with me please text me or comment wherever this is and tell me because I don't remember why that is a thing that's in my brain but anyway it was not a hundred dollars it was fifteen million (laughs) dollars but it would be a while before this territory would materialize into the lands we know of today as the 19th century continued the westward expansion of the United States was imminent and the gold rushers fueled the push of manifest destiny the traverse of People towards the west and the Pacific Northwest, like Oregon in 1845, actually inspired a few names of places I have lived. If you've played the game Oregon Trail, you might know that Fort Kearney is one of the first major stops you make in that game, and this was true in real life as well. In 1848, Fort Kearney was established under the name of Fort Childs, first but quickly renamed for General Stephen Watts Kearney. The fort was to be placed near the Grand Island of the Platte River, and this is where the name for the town of Grand Island, Nebraska, comes from. Growing up, the name always confused me because, like, Grand Island, there's no ocean here, bro. And then learning that the Platte had many islands in it, like, it was a much wider, more intense river (laughs) than it seems to be today. Uh, Sandbars would make up the islands, and that is where the name comes from, which is kind of neat. Grand Island is just east of carney so it's kind of cool to see all that uh, names interlinked in their foundations like this anyway fort carney named after stephen carney spelled without an e at the end but now the town has an e what happened well postal worker misspelled it and people just kind of rolled with it and i always thought this was just some nonsense that they taught us as children to shut us up but that's what happened apparently <laughs> or the lie has gone too far and it's on every website about carney <laughs> it's also pronounced like that carney but it's spelled, you know, K-E-A-R-N-E-Y, which makes people who haven't been there want to pronounce it Kearney. And I assure you, it's not. I don't know about the other Carnies that are in the United States, but this one, definitely not, <laughs> definitely not spelled like that, or pronounced like that. Anyway. As people continued to travel west, plenty of people stopped off at Fort Kearney area, and focus was shifting from making some of these places established states. Legislation had been introduced by Stephen A. Douglas, a senator from Illinois, to organize the Missouri Territory into a more distinct bit of land. It was also a splintering bit of legislation that repealed what was then established as the Missouri Compromise, which had dictated in 1820 that slavery would be prohibited north of the 36-degree parallel line. Douglas had a few main goals, and was hoping to get his name in the history books it seems so he was also wanting to get the railroad built thus entrenching his legacy and this railroad would be connected to his represented chicago as well through the nebraska territory the shifting of the missouri compromise was included in an effort to get southern slaveholders to approve of this kansas nebraska act since the two new states would undoubtedly fall within the realm of being north of that line and thus not be slave states The unique tweakage of the bill allowed the Kansas-Nebraska Act to be passed in May of 1854 and swapped the Missouri Compromise with the idea of popular sovereignty which would give the southern states enough reason to allow it to pass essentially. Southern states were not concerned with Nebraska itself because it was generally assumed that it would be a free state, it's too far north, but Kansas became a battleground for the pro and anti-slavery movements. Kansas saw a large influx of people moving to the state to sway voting one way or the other, leading the Jayhawkers to defend the state from pro-slavery ideology. They would clash with many others, moving from neighboring Missouri to clash with these Jayhawkers. Now the Kansas-Nebraska Act, despite being passed, obviously led to a lot of confrontation both within the state of Nebraska, within the state of Kansas, but it would also lead to the famous Lincoln Douglas debates as a younger Abraham Lincoln opposed this act, and in October of the year it was passed, the pair traded off long speeches which would set up rematch when Abe sought to take Douglas's Senate seat four years after. What does this have to do with nebraska nothing really uh the territory was established by the kansas nebraska act which had already been passed by this point but i thought it would be interesting to include this random bit of trivia about the lincoln lincoln douglas debate stuff where my nfl nerds at right (laughs) yeah the national forensics league obviously what else would it be Anyway, while the bleeding Kansas was occurring, their neighbors to the north seemed to be enjoying relative seemed to be enjoying a relatively great time comparatively. Fort Kearney continued to provide service with travelers crossing the country to wherever they were heading. Most common was the gold rush, but of course any number of Reasons could push people westward. You had the Mormon Trail, the Oregon Trail, and people going to find gold in California. Stops along the quote-unquote Great Platte River Road were pretty standard with Fort Kearney and forts like it providing any number of services along their journey like food and tools, repairs to their wagons whatever from 1846 to 1869 this is this is how it worked this was until the railroad was complete following the railroad's completion fort Kearney was essentially dissolved some of the buildings even taken part and transported to california to be used as just an outpost there meanwhile towns like lincoln and omaha were being founded omaha founded in 1854 and lincoln was founded in 1856 but founded as lancaster now this solves a mystery that i never really cared enough to look up but as lancaster county in nebraska is where lincoln is and Lincoln County is not where Lincoln is I always wondered whenever that would come up but never again like but again never enough to care enough to look it up until now so now now you all know <laughs> in 1869 the University of Nebraska at Lincoln was established which is pretty much the only thing the state is known for now and that is not even a bragging point like it was 25 years ago but we suffer we, we all suffer together right <laughs> but back to Carney. Uh, with the closing of the fort, a town had already been established nearby, so it was not all lost. Dobby town, founded in 1859, was an extension to Fort Kearney, but when the fort was disassembled in 1871, Dobbytown was abandoned. In 1867, Nebraska officially became a state, becoming the first and only state so far to become a state through an overturned presidential veto. The veto was instituted by Abraham Lincoln's successor, Andrew Johnson, who wanted to maintain the concept of popular sovereignty while congress was trying to pass the state's inclusion and by way of that force the state to treat any african americans as citizens what why would you want them to do that um and give them the right to vote which the original state constitution declared the right to vote um, as one reserved for white men in the state congress amended it but andrew did not like that so he vetoed because andrew johnson is actually the worst little known history fact for you but congress overrode it and by way of a super majority vote. After Dobby Town dissolved, a new town was established in the summer of that year and it provided an excellent place for support and working for the newly functional railroad, originally called Kearney Junction. The first homestead was claimed in 1871. The new town of Kearney quickly became popular a stop akin to its precursor fort. Now, after the Civil War, Nebraska continued to grow thanks to things like the Homestead Act. One issue that came to the forefront of homesteading in the Great Plains region of the country was lack of trees the lack of roots would not allow the soil to bind well so it was really um when it would turn it would just be very loose and dusty essentially and this this lack of trees this is a sentiment that i heard a lot when i like first left nebraska as one of the key identifiers of the state like oh nebraska uh You guys don't have any tree i never realized how true it was until i lived in a place with actual trees i say that and it sounds crazy but that's true like like i i moved from nebraska and then i lived in for a very short time in florida and then california in the desert in california and then i lived in nevada after that so for a long time i didn't see any more trees than what i had seen in nebraska so i was confused by this but whatever i digress uh the plan of lack of trees well this uh this was met with like a bounty of sorts the plan was to offer a prize of fifty dollars to whoever could grow the largest grove of trees in the state leading to what would be the f- like first inclinations of arbor day and that's one of the state's claimed to fames is the home of arbor day <laughs> carney became a beacon for investment as it also claimed named as the uh, Midway City, claiming 1,733 miles either way to Boston or San Francisco. She might be thinking this sounds wrong, but according to the original railroad map at the time, this is actually accurate. By the 1880s, the population reached around 10,000 and further employment opportunities. In, forms, in the form of a cotton mill came to the area. Now, the mill ultimately failed, as did the boom that Carney saw at the time. Investors, um, Some of the investors in the mill included a guy named George W. Frank. So this guy has his name all over the city. The failed cotton mill turned into Cotton Mill Park, which still exists, and the Frank House, a really fantastic mansion that he had uh, commissioned to be built, is now located on the camp, campus of the University of Nebraska at Kearney. Place holds one of Abraham Lincoln's top hats. Kind of cool. The Frank House, which, like, as I mentioned, was commissioned by George Washington Frank and his son, George William Frank, was the one who was going to design it and it was completed in 1889 and the hat and cost around 40000 at the time. And now this would be close to $1.4 million in today's money, which actually makes sense looking at it. I feel like that's pretty apt. The three-story house of uh, Colorado slash Wyoming stones was uh, wired for electricity, had nine fireplaces, had a very signature like tile roof imported from Holland and featured a 10-foot tall Tiffany window. Now the financial troubles of the 1890s forced Frank to sell it to a doctor named S. Gronthon who used it as a hospital and then soon the state granted money towards a tuberculosis hospital on 12 acres nearby and funds continued until a large building known as east sun building was finished the thought at the time was to treat tuberculosis with open fresh air and sunlight a few Few places were better suited than the rural area of Carney. Now, this coincided with the founding of the college in town, which is just down the road from the Frank House and the soon this hospital, both of which are now part of the university campus i always wondered why the frank house was part of the campus but you know it sits right next to the university of nebraska medical center which is the old tuberculosis ward and that all ties it together which is kind of cool the frank house at the time when the tuberculosis ward would was actually uh living quarters for the nurses and doctors who worked at the tuberculosis ward which how many rooms it has that makes sense like that's that's like a functional appropriate reason (laughs) to use that building instead of just you know dismantling it or whatever Now, I mentioned the college being founded, but it was specifically founded around 1904, with the first class being 96 whole students, a far cry from the almost 6300 it hosts now today. This helped the population grow steadily once again after the boom burst in the 1890s, which continued to grow to around 8500 in 1930, but with the Great Depression coming around the corner growth slowed down once again now these booms um, that would occur throughout created a popular downtown district which is still a very popular area in the town and it features a very unique like red brick roads which it does it's not the entire downtown but it's a few blocks and it kind of adds like this classic old-school charm to the area but it's also not great to drive above like 20 miles an hour which is super convenient because that's the speed limit uh found that out during a driving test anyway <laughs> world war ii would also give way to a lot of manufacturing in central nebraska close proximity to the railroad and soon the burgeoning interstate allowed Kearney to grow via agricultural and manufacturing influences interestingly enough from 1900 to 2020 only 10 years before 1900 resulted in a negative population change every other decade until 2010 to 2020 had at least a 10% increase, the largest coming from the 1960 to 1970 decade, which was 35%, which I can't, I think can be attributed to the town now being connected to the interstate system in 1964. And all of this led to the town with its current population of 33,790 people. Some interesting features that mark this town is of course the midway point across the country. When I left and joined the Navy, I would tell people where I grew up was pretty center on the map. So much so that early in the town's inception, a push to change the nation's capital to Kearney, or nearby, since it was very center, would be inclusive for the entire country. This obviously did not hold or take (laughs) people were like no i don't think so another icon of the town itself is the archway monument which crosses the interstate If you've driven through nebraska via interstate 80 you would have driven underneath it completed in 2000 and serves as an interactive museum of sorts for people to walk through and visit historical timeline of the settlement of the state as well as just early prairie life and pioneering ways The archway is pretty cool serving as a place for numerous orchestra concerts in my youth as well as a few fun field trips for us as children. Another location is south of the interstate, which is Rose Sanctuary, a hotspot for the migration of sandhill cranes. For some reason, these cranes stop in the fields of central Nebraska, and it draws all sorts of attention from old people and bird watchers. And I never understood it, but to each their own, I suppose. Roe Sanctuary is an information and viewing center with those cool binoculars that you see in like places like New York or San Francisco to look at the sites off of like the large building but here he uses them to look at birds so there's that <laughs> Nebraska also gives way to some famous inventions the Higgins boat, utilized extensively in the landing at Normandy on D-Day, was invented by a man from Columbus, Nebraska. First prototype built in the basement of his parents' home in Omaha. Andrew Jackson Higgins is that man. And there's the speculation that is that he designed these crafts for the shallow rivers of the state. Flat water, man. <laughs> anyway. You know what else? Kool-Aid. Yeah. You're welcome, world. Developed by Edwin Perkins in Hastings, Nebraska. A short drive from my hometown and part of the bustling Tri-City area. Of Kearney, Grand Island, and Hastings. Sarcasm heavily implied. <laughs> Each town is anywhere from 20 to 45 minutes apart from one another, but I guess if they were big cities, they'd all be touching, right? Maybe? I don't know. Either way, Perkins worked for his father at their general store and found himself taking to the products in the store from a creation standpoint and even began to create his own product. He had to move from Henley, which I'd never heard of before this, to the metropolis of Hastings once again sarcasm to unload more product he had created the formulation printed his own labels packaging every nothing but upward on this guy's profit apparently this was not a super success though as uh, some of the bottles from his uh, custom drinks fruit smack great name kept breaking and shipping ever the entrepreneur perkins decided to separate the liquid from the powder used to create the drink packaged powder individually in envelopes and create a new label which he called cool aid oh yeah (laughs) bet you didn't expect that at the top of the episode did you the coolest of aids from a state full of nothing but corn and cows corn and beef corned beef Oh yeah, that reminds me. Another thing that is credited to Nebraska is the invention of the Reuben sandwich. The corned beef sauerkraut sandwich is credited with two stories, one from New York, but they have enough inventions. The other from around 1920 stemmed from a man named Reuben Kulikowski. i'm gonna guess that's how you pronounce that a lithuanian grocer who lived in omaha would order a corned beef and sauerkraut sandwich during a weekly poker game with some of omaha's business underground some other famous inventions include the vice grip locking pliers dorothy lynch salad dressing car rentals frozen tv dinners cliff's notes ski lifts and the safer barrier used in auto racing a few of these i was privy to but others i had no idea about but once again You're welcome. Honorable mentions for places I live but did not live for over a year are Grand Island, Hastings... Omaha and McCool Junction. All those places I lived after I moved back to the states following my Navy service, but didn't want to talk about other places and then mention Nebraska again out of nowhere. So, you know, onwards into my life story from Nebraska. I left and joined the Navy at 17, turned 18 in boot camp, like a big boy, and was stationed in a place I had never heard of named Fallon, Nevada. Nevada had slightly different historical footing. It does have some more interesting prehistoric animals, which apparently is the best way to start the history of the state According to Wikipedia, the Sierra Nevada mountains and the high desert were once home to creatures like mastodons, wolves, lions, and giant sloths. That's right, baby, giant sloth time! <laughs> the mountains and the high desert were also home to many prehistoric people, with petroglyphs decorating some of the historic sites. In fact, one place near the base of which I lived displayed these uh, plenty. This particular location also held one of the plaques where, like one of those plaques where it shows what a scene would look like when water dominated the lower regions of an area, including like images that point to the water lines on various mountains and hills, which I felt was pretty cool. Some of the native tribes to live within the region that would would eventually become Nevada include the western Shoshone, northern and southern Paiute as well. In the mid-18th century, the first Europeans entered the region by way of Francisco Garces, a Spanish missionary. Nevada soon came under the umbrella of the Spanish Empire, which always kind of cracked me up. Like we know how far away Spain was from Western North America, and we already know that nobody was really that good at sailing that far away. But, you know, they did control a big chunk of Central America at that point. So it was a little easier, but anyway, I digress. As the turn of the 19th century came, Nevada was incorporated into the Alta California province. Following the California split of 1804, that's when the larger chunk fell into the ocean. No. <laughs> following Mexico's independence from Spain in 1821, that province was retained by Mexico. In 1825, trappers from Hudson's Bay Company entered the northern section of the state, and more exploration occurred through the next decade, including. Jedediah Smith's trader party that traveled to Las Vegas Valley. Las Vegas is Spanish for the Meadows, which was given to the region during the exploration of the Spanish during the early 1800s. Soon the region was involved in another conflict in the way of the Mexican-American War, which began after the 1845 annexation of Texas by America, which had followed their independence from Mexico, which was a conflict that followed the Alamo, which I really need to do an episode about. Anyway, the United States annexed Texas, but Mexico didn't like it because they never originally accepted the treaties of Velasco apparently, so they fought the United States in this battle and not only lost Texas, which they never technically had, but also lost Alta California in 1848. So I guess it was a real, really bad plan <laughs> on Mexico's part. The very next year gold is found in California and this creates a bum rush of people to the west. Nevada became part of the Utah Territory after being part of the California Territory. In 1850, a settlement was started named Mormon Station, which was changed to Genoa later on, and it sits just south of Carson City in the Carson Valley. Now claimed as Nevada's oldest town, now Nevada... Where does that name come? The name comes from the Spanish word "nieve," which loosely translates to like snow-capped, referring to the Sierra Nevada mountains. Virginia City also settled in 1859, which is near Reno, and now has a heck of a ghost town to visit. Highly recommended if you're ever in the area. It's a very like it's kept just like there's a section of Virginia City that is just perfect, like old school can't, can't beat it. Like, that's such an authentic, like, representation of what it was like, because it hasn't changed. Anyway, Virginia City also had a small newspaper called the Virginia City Territorial Enterprise, which had a failed minor writing for it by the name of Mark Twain. Not a typo, or whatever the audio version of a typo would be. (laughs) Reno, which I had visited many times during my time in Nevada, was settled less than a decade later, named after Jesse Lee Reno, a Civil War officer who died in the, in the war on the side of the Union. And, fueled by the reach of the Central Pacific Railroad, Reno, grew quickly. Nevada was granted statehood in 1864 despite being short of the typical baseline of 60,000 people. This wasn't a firm requirement but typically at the time this was pretty standard. University of Nevada was established in 1874 in Elko but then moved to Reno 11 years later which is where it remains to this day. The Wolfpack state continued to grow thanks to various mining endeavors. Silver mining was the biggest industry but various gold deposits were discovered which actually shaped the bottom end of the state's border and this actually became statehood in the latter quarter of the 19th century, but more gold and silver findings after the turn of the century provided a much needed boom into the slumped economy. Early in the 1900s saw two major developments within the state. First, small town, easily forgettable, sitting in the middle of nowhere was founded in 1905. The second is a town that features a military base nearby with all the flying jets that you can handle and plenty of gambling hole in the wall places which was established in 1908. The first being Las Vegas and the second being Fallon. See what I did there? <laughs> it's got you with the old switcheroo. Anyway, both places had pretty small beginnings, very humble, if you will. But I didn't live in Vegas, so you get the Notes version. Las Vegas was founded in 1905, as mentioned before, when land near the Union Pacific Tracks was auctioned off and officially incorporated in 1911. In 1931, gambling was legalized, mark- legalized marking a turning point in the state's free-spirited nature. The same year saw the inception of the Hoover Dam, completed in 1934, attracting workers and cash to that region. 1941, the El Rancho Vegas Resort opened, sparking the birth of the famous Las Vegas Strip. This era saw a series of resorts and casinos competing for extravagance and allure. The 1950s witnessed the founding of the Nellis Air Force Base, originally under a generic name, Las Vegas Air Base, I think is what it was called, and... Also, Las Vegas earned its nickname, the Atomic City, from 1951 to 1963 due to visible nuclear weapons testings in the desert. (laughs) How exciting. Uh, yeah, people living there could actually allegedly see the mushroom clouds in the distance. And they also got sick from radiation not surprising originally inhabited by native american tribes las vegas transformed into an entertainment capital in the mid 20th century synonymous with the rat pack showgirls and iconic performers like elvis presley its lenient stance on gambling and entertainment made it a haven for seekers of legal and illicit pleasures so yeah there's (laughs) that's the History of Vegas, <laughs> real quick. All right, so on to the place I actually called home for two years Fallon. Fallon has gone by several names even before it was officially founded. The nearby Carson River drew settlers to the region as far back as the 1860s, but it wasn't until Mike and Eliza Fallon opened up a post office on their ranch that things really kicked off, and that was in 1896. They drew in others, most notably Jim Richards, who opened a general store on their ranch. His store was so popular that it became a staple in the region, and Native Americans even referred to the place, the ranch, as Jim's town, because he was he was the one they were coming to see, really. The town really took off following the Newlands Irrigation Project, which aimed to turn the arid land in the Lahontan Valley into a productive agricultural area. The, the Lahotan Dam also provided an electronic uh, also provided an electrical output in addition to the distribution of irrigation waters to the farmland, which aided in agricultural growth in the desert climate following the reclamation act of 1902 which provided these new things mike fallon sold his ranch to warren w williams triple dub what's up (laughs) who then began to organize it for a town fun little fact is that trip dub's neighbor apparently helped him lay out the streets but he was taller than the neighbor and they did it by foot stride, so there's a few of these streets that are slightly off because one he did and one his neighbor did. Very useless but fun fact, and I'm sure it's probably not the same anymore because the streets are wider than they would have been back then. I'm sure it's it's got to be fixed by now, right? I don't know. Following the Reclamation Act led to uh, the Derby Dam in 1903, the Truckee Canal in 1905, the Lahotten, the Lahotten Dam in 1914, The biggest agricultural export from the region was the Heart of Gold Cantaloupes, so that's pretty cool. (laughs) Fallon is also part of the Lincoln Highway along Highway 50, also known as the loneliest road in America, which is an apt description having driven halfway across it. During World War II, the United States Navy built a base near the town which remains there today yes the navy built a base in the middle of the high desert for airplanes obviously <laughs> originally just uh, created to ensure pacific defense against the japanese potential whatever they were going to do it changed up quite a bit to fit a more suitable task for being in the middle of nowhere became a major training base with so much of the land in nevada owned by the federal government providing tons of airspace for training flights to go down not not actually go down but you know to take place, <laughs> while the town itself has not grown exponentially, despite Tripdub's estimates being in the twenty thousand people range, it currently sits below ten thousand. More people live outside of the town proper, but still not a crazy amount. The base is the base itself has changed quite a bit, most notably in 1996 when the Navy's Strike and Air Warfare Center moved to Fallon from Miramar. This move included moving of the famous Top Gun program to NAS Fallon, and this is the famous training program in which the movie top Gun was very loosely based around and it was uh, the purpose in which i was stationed there for i worked with a permanent detachment or squadron if you will assigned to support the pilots and the planes within the top gun program so as they came in to become qualified and do their training if they if they broke their airplane me and my co-workers fixed it essentially or tried to I spent two years in that desert and was close proximity to Reno, Lake Tahoe, and whatnot. I stared at the mountains outside of Fallon often, the Yellow Mountain and Grimes Point. I would take trips down and go fishing in Pyramid Lake, although after the Reclamation Act, the water diverted did kill off some native species of trout, so I missed out on that, which is kind of lame. Also, Pyramid Lake big hot spot for hippies leaving the desert following burning man they would stop there and scrub their filthy bodies before returning to society they would also panhandle outside of the walmart in town which was always an interesting sight and never a dull moment in that place notable inventions from nevada well i'm glad you asked levi strauss no relation teamed up with a latvian tailor out of reno named jacob davis it's gotta be a fake name to create um blue jeans first major silver ore was found in nevada which led to a lot of its settlement the terrifying clown motel only motel only motel of its kind for a damn good reason i would say is in Tonopah, nevada nevada was also the first state to ratify the 15th amendment granting voting rights to african-american hard hats were invented exclusively for hoover dam workers which you know probably would have been invented otherwise but yeah that's you know that's cool and also mark twain because he sucked at mining apparently so i mean they didn't invent him but they gave him his first shot at riding like professionally (laughs) so that wraps up nevada and fallon for the journey and next we go to a technicality after fallon i was given orders to a squadron in washington state's whidbey island naval air station and this is located in the northern section of america's pacific northwest 30 or so miles away from seattle Now, i say it's a technicality because while i was living quote unquote living there i you know here addressed basically to a command in this area i was on a deployment for a good chunk of it and I still count it because, well, I can. I did buy license plates there, so I feel like that's important. As is the state for all, en- as is the case for all entries, Washington State was first established as a territory. The name for the state is not a mystery, however, as it was the only state named after a president, which is George Washington. If you are confused, it was actually going to be called Columbia, named after the Columbia River, but it was shot down due to it being too similar to the District of Columbia. So they decided to name it Washington, which obviously, which. Obviously, doesn't ever get confused for Washington, the city within the District of Columbia. Anyway, the land was historically inhabited by various Native American tribes. Some of the prominent tribes include the Coast Salish, the Chinook, the Haida, New Chinult, the Macaw, the Yakima, the Nez Perce, and many others. Each tribe had its own distinct language and culture and traditions, uh, contributing to the rich tapestry of indigenous people in the pacific northwest it also is very interesting because the native tribes in the pacific northwest they all have like a very i don't know it's so unique to those like groups the way that like their words and their names are i feel like it's just very different the only way i can think of it it sounds more fluid because there's like words like sonomish and uh the salish <laughs> these kinds of things and then you go to like the middle like the the prairie essentially the great plains you have know, lakota iroquois these kinds of things i don't know it feels like maybe it's just me i've been looking at these names maybe too long but <laughs> let me know if like you've also noticed this before because it is a thing that i've noticed before but anyway the biggest driver of these people were the uh rich fishing in the various bodies of water as well as whales in the puget sound these of course would vary as you shift inward for the people living in the center of the state obviously they're not whaling but you know the coastal tribes would be europeans landed on the uh, coast of washington in 1775 which is crazy just be at least one year before america was invented think about that captain bruno de heseta of the santiago claimed the land obviously as you do when you approach a land that is nobody lives on that you can tell (laughs) after this the native population of the pacific west coast uh, which had very little interaction if any to any europeans at this point began to be decimated from smallpox so way to go spain england was a few years behind as they arrived on the coast in the next few decades most notably george vancouver a british explorer too bad they didn't name anything after him no they named a lot after him (laughs) he also claimed the island i would call home for king and country in 1792 whidbey island now he had a man with him named joseph joseph whidbey and a man named peter peter puget and none of these guys got anything named after isn't that sad (laughs) he did claim like most of the coast but i wanted to share the connection early on so in 1798 convention between the spanish and the british ended uh, spanish control of the region and allowed everyone to participate in the fruitful wealth to be had within the evergreen state otter pelts became one of the biggest parts of this trade with uh, american captain robert gray establishing a trade in them even naming the columbia river after the ship he was sailing when he quote unquote found it gray is also the namesake for grays harbor county which is where aberdeen sits which is hometown to one kurt Cobain. I'm sure you might have heard of him in the decade following robert gray's trade establishment the lewis and clark expedition left to explore the far reaches of the newly purchased louisiana territory by 8 by october of 1805 they had arrived in the state other notable expeditions include david tompkins trek down the columbia river and state to claim for britain again in 1811 apparently vancouver's claim wasn't good enough this was continued through the anglo-american convention in 1818, which divvied up the rights to the state, and by the next year, Spain completely abdicated any kind of claim to it. Not really dissimilar to Nevada. Uh, the Hudson's Bay Company also influenced the settlement of Americans in the Washington Territory, which is actually aided in the pushing out of the British influence, albeit a few decades later. Some early settlements include Fort Vancouver and this fort actually had a similar effect to that of Fort Kearney where smaller towns would kind of pop up nearby full of the customers but also workers of the fort. A man named Marcus Whitman established a settlement in present-day Walla Walla in uh, support of the Oregon Trail. Whitman actually uh, tried to provide medical care for both settlers and natives in the area who were kind of still adjusting to these foreign diseases that the British and Spanish were carrying. The issue came about, when the native people would not heal in the same way that the white settlers seemed to do who were adapted to these diseases and they would kind of make a full recovery and then the Native Americans would see this and be like what and this led to the native population to believe that Whitman was either inflicting damage on them purposefully or not healing them on purpose either way they killed him and 12 others for this transgression in 1847 which led to a war of sorts between the native people and the settlers in this region. Now, I know the story takes place in the Dakotas, but this reminds me of the opening scene in the movie The Revenant with Leonardo DiCaprio. Visual of trappers and mountain men fighting indigenous people, I think, is what what is connecting in my brain. Anyway, the year before the Whitman massacre saw settlement started by a black pioneer named George Washington Bush, who settled New Market, which is now Tumwater, which is near modern day Olympia, Washington, George W. Bush. You didn't think I was gonna let that go, did you? George W. Bush chose Washington for one very simple reason. He was allowed to go there. Oregon would not allow black settlers of any kind, but they also didn't allow slavery. So that's a little bit of a confusing legislation thing going on. The Oregon Territory is divided from Washington by the Columbia River, which acts as the border between the two. Now as travelers followed the Oregon Trail, a lot of them would continue up into the Puget Sound, which I don't really blame them. It's one of the most beautiful views I've ever experienced in a place that I have lived in, and and that is looking at the sound from various points. Oregon actually obtained statehood far before Washington, and that was in 1859, the result of which had forced Britain and the United States to settle disputes of land, and the result of which created the British Columbia, um, part of Canada which makes sense now I never really put too much thought into why it was called that but you know now we all know so Seattle was founded around this time settled first in 1855 incorporated in 1869 named after Chief Seattle who was a chief of the Duwamish and Suquamish tribes in the region see this is what I mean like they have like these very like flowing soft kind of name I don't know but I mean, not all of them but it's something I've noticed if there's something going on I don't know if it's conspiracy or what no in research for this part I was looking up more information about Seattle and uh, this guy Chief Seattle and he seems like a really interesting guy he's born in the late 1770s potentially and lived all the way up to 1866 there's even a photograph of him but like think about the landscape of this guy's life and how much changed during his time and he had even allegedly persuaded the settlers to name the city after him which is like some wizard level of public relations if i've ever seen it the city seal even features an image of his likeness which is neat to see and also really paints a picture of what appropriate depictions and images are and how they can be used to show respect to these people who are instrumental in some of the major parts of what we consider our society this is also really evident in a lot of imagery from the pacific northwest where the artistic touch of native people can be found everywhere the biggest examples are like the seattle seahawks feature a logo influenced by indigenous artwork, specifically transformation mask of the Quakwakewah. You have no idea how many times I had to practice to say that. It is spelled KWA, K-W-A K-A apostrophe w-a-k-w that's a crazy word right (laughs) the squadron i was in uh when i was stationed there had a logo which featured a very similar style to like the seattle seahawks logo like that artistic style of the indigenous culture is in both and if my supervisor at the time is to be believed an indigenous artist created that logo for the command when it was conceptualized essentially that's the story i was told i don't know if it's true i tried to look it up couldn't find anything concrete but you know after oregon became a state in 1863 Idaho became a territory which then created the eastern edge of Washington state shape following part of the Snake River this kicked things into gear for Washington who drafted their Constitution in 1878 but this one would not even be used in an official manner and they had drafted a different one for their 1889 christening november 11th 1889 washington became a state the puget sound lent itself to some industry in the area which was initially shipbuilding industry but as the century turned in world war one and world war two loomed on the horizon the staple of seattle would become a little more in would come into the fray. Shipbuilding, while still major, is not as synonymous with Seattle as airplanes seem to be, specifically the company Boeing, which was started in nineteen seventeen, as two separate companies that later merged into one, Pacific Aero Products Co. and Boeing Airplane Co. Four Humans took flight, however, Seattle was a logging town, large tracts of evergreen covered land lent itself to some serious logging in the Pacific Northwest. It was at this time that the West Coast also saw a wave of Asian immigrants as I mentioned in the Japanese Internment Camps episode. Gold found in the Klondike region of the Yukon in 1899 sent hundreds of thousands of people north and Seattle and largely Washington became a great midpoint for them to try and offload their hauls. Seattle becoming a like trade mecca for these people at the time. This comes 10 years after the Great Fire of Seattle which actually burned down, the large business district, Uh, the city actually had some silver linings from this though. The rodent problem was now no longer a problem. So if you have a rodent problem in your city, just burn it all down. No, don't do that. That was a joke. After the fire in the city, uh, it actually doubled in population. And this rebuilding actually created one of the more interesting aspects of Seattle as the new buildings were just built on top of the old ones, creating a basement level under the new ground level. The Seattle Underground is a tourist hotspot that you can actually visit and see some of the original structures. So that's pretty cool. The gold rush created a boom economy. And this actually influenced a few different industries. Combining this with the fishing, mining, logging industry of the area, Seattle was soon expanding even more rapidly into the 20th century famous companies like ups eddie bauer nordstrom all began in this town in relatively quick succession succession to one another shipbuilding continued as a major export for the for the city expanding even further during the world wars of course boeing would start in 1917 and definitely pick up during world war ii while seattle bremerton vancouver all pumped out warships during that conflict as well hanford works on the eastern edge of the state also contributed parts to the atomic bombs during the war so much destruction from one state which is kind of wild to think about i'd like a kill count on washington state if we could like a kd ratio that's just kind of off the charts that is interesting because washington is also considered to be one of the, like the most liberal states in the country so where does that come from Well, they had that first black pioneer, George W. Bush. They also held a massive margin of African-American wages against the rest of the country at the time, which lent itself to a more diverse populace. Like, they had a higher wage average for African-Americans comparatively their founding even is more integration than genocide comparatively to other states handling of the indigenous population don't get me wrong there definitely was some not great stuff but like for the most part they worked. it seemed that they worked with people a lot better does that have something to do with that No clue. They were also providing legal abortions even before Roe v Wade decision in 1973. Now I don't think there's any one good reason for it but it is kind of fascinating to think about. Things weren't all sunshines and rainbows in the dreary rainy state. In the summer of 1980, Mount St. Helens split into a massive eruption which also brings me to my next point about how many all active volcanoes are in this state. Mount Baker, Glacier Peak. Mount Rainier, Mount Adams, and Mount St. Helens. Wyoming isn't the super volcano, Washington is. What the heck, dude. (laughs) All right, so shifting to my home in the state, Whidbey Island, Whidbey was named after Joseph Whidbey, who I mentioned uh, who was part of Vancouver's expeditions in 1792? Quite a while passed before any non indigenous people would actually spend any meaningful time on the island. In 1840, a Catholic missionary named Father Francois Norbert Blanchett, no known relation to Kate, was invited to the island by Chief Salicum. Over the next year, he spent his time teaching his, his Jesus words and helping them construct a church. In 1842, the USS Vincennes and Captain Charles Wilkes visited the island while charting the Puget Sound. Soon after, in 1848, a failed settlement and land claim on the island was attempted by Thomas Glasgow, who had uh, desired to be the first settler. Obviously, didn't go well. If I used failed settlement, he went as far as to marry an indigenous an indigenous woman, even. But other locals did not approve, and he was pressured by them to leave. Wasn't until 1850 when the next settlers attempted their claim. Colonel Isaac Eby traveled all the way from columbus ohio and he was the first like permanent settler. i have to wonder if he got confused like a little bit since the state was almost called columbia did he get turned around and just go i'm not going home and just let this be his new life i like to imagine so (laughs) evie was actually the postmaster for port town Port Townsend, which was across the inlet from the island, and he would take his boat every day to work. What a fun way to start your day. No pontoons, no motorboating, making waves, catching rays up on the roof. No, you start your day rowing, you end your day rowing, this dude had to be jacked, right? just rowing every day, twice a day. Well, it didn't matter how much rowing he did because he was killed in this land in 1857. It's actually not known specifically who killed him, just that they were indigenous of some kind. Some sources say Russian, uh, Indians is what they say. And the, I didn't say it, That's there's, there's their word. And then some say the Haida, stemming from a dispute which left a Haida chief and 27 others dead, which seems to be the most likely story. Other settlers include Dr. Richard Lansdale who named both Oak Harbor and Crescent Harbor, which both were named for visual descriptions, which is kind of a nice change of pace. He also founded the village of Co... Uh, Coveland? On Penco, Coagland was made the county seat of the newly formed Island County a few years later. Thomas Coop arrived in the area as well, becoming the first and only captain to sail a square rigged ship through Deception Pass. Town of Coopville on the island is named after him. This pass is a strait which separates Whidbey Island from the mainland of Washington and the road which connects them, really one of my favorite drives in the whole country. The naming comes from the early explorer's inability to discern Whidbey Island as an island or a peninsula because of the deep channel on the other side of the pass american and european settlers on the island did intermingle with the native population on the island the skagit people uh called on called the island home for as far back as the 13th century bce but due to an appointment of a young skagit man who the tribe didn't recognize as any leadership at all their lands were essentially given up, Now it reads to me as the Washington's territory governor in 1855, Isaac Stevens, pulled the fast one and picked people he believed he could trick into signing over the land, because that's basically what happened. Whidbey Island found itself as a logging community shortly after, matching the rest of the wood-rich region. Logging shaped a lot of the island for the next uh, few decades. Towns like Clinton and Langley flourished due to the log trade while others attempted. None really developed past the 20th century. World War II being a common theme for a few places in today's episode, Naval air station Whidbey Island would be no exception. Another fortification on the island was created for Eby, named after Isaac Eby, the first permanent Settler on the island, which is now a state park, and it has like bunkers that you can see that used to house like six inch guns for coastal defense, which is kind of neat. NAS Woodby Island was established as a base to rearm and refuel patrol planes in the area. Officially commissioned in 1942, the aired field was soon named Alt Field after William B. Alt. Navy commander who was lost at sea during the Battle of Coral Sea, which took place a few months prior. In addition to patrol planes, Alt Field also housed F-4F Wildcats, F6, F-6F Hellcats, which replaced the former in their, after their production. The overall complex of Whidbey Island includes a separate base strictly for seaplanes. The end of World War II uh, ended most of the operations for most naval air bases and most bases in the country, but Whidbey Island was one of many to survive, and when Korea began it was a strategic place for patrol plane deployments. In the 1960s the base began shifting once again, patrol squadrons seemed to be moving from the area and even seaplanes were relocated which ended their activity on the seaplane base. The 70s however brought air station into what it would be today with the A-6 intruders being relocated to the base and the electronic warfare versions of that plane, the EA-6B Prowlers also being headquartered there. The patrol squadrons in the area also had a life brought into them as the P-2 Neptune gave way to the p3 orion which were actively part of the base until they began to be phased out by the p8 poseidons in late 2010. for the new century closures forced the navy to relocate p3 squadrons from the places they were relocated to before which meant they returned to Whidbey island which activated Whidbey island as a home for the patrol wings of the pacific fleet after the new century the EA-18 Growler, an electronic attack version of the F-18 Super Hornet, began to replace the old Prowlers. Now would be serves as a hub for patrol and electronic attack squadrons. The island itself, would be Island, housing around 70,000 people, various towns, Oak Harbor being the largest at 23,000 people, and the uh, EA-18 Growler. Those are those are what I worked on when I worked there. That was that was the airplane that I worked on. In case you're curious. Now Washington is not as fair as the others as far as inventions go because kind of Boeing being founded there and like they have so many inventions for so many things like can't include those so (laughs) here's some major ones that aren't Boeing. The Puffer Jacket by Eddie Bauer, The Modern Backpack, Electric Bass, Grunge, Pictionary, Vinyl, The Whammy Bar, Microsoft, the best music player ever, the Zune, I mean come on, Xbox. Got a lot of stuff going on in Washington. I did enjoy my time in Washington. I do miss the view along the highway that goes through Deception Pass. The bridge overlooking the Puget Sound and the Pass Island sits so high up. You have this great panorama view which I was spoiled by for such a long time. Do yourself a favor. Go to Google Earth, Google Maps, go to Deception Pass and go to the street view and then head north and cross the bridges over uh, the Pass Island and then follow that road as you pass by Pass lake which i'm saying past a lot but it's the deception Pass lake which is just north of it and there's like this curve you like weave through the trees and then you curve down and you're like at almost like groundwater level and it's so pretty those those are the best (laughs) anyway so that's washington and my home of whidbey island so i made the decision to return home after four years in the navy back in Back to nebraska but we're not going back to nebraska as i mentioned but after being in nebraska for a few years i needed something different so i followed my brother and one of my best friends to wisconsin which is where i now live wisconsin has a slightly different history than some of the others but overall the theme is largely the same some really sweet prehistoric animals in the region mammoths sweet Mastodons? Sweet. Giant beaver? <laughs> you're goddamn right. Native populations lived in the area before European explorers began laying claim, obviously. Be weird if it was opposite. <laughs> Primary tribes of the region include the Ojibwa, Menominee, Ho-Chunk, Otawatomi, Kickapoo, the Sauk, Fox, Illinois, Miami, Huron, Ottawa, Santee, there's there's a lot. The tribe known as the Mohicans arrived in the area as early as the 19th century after the Indian Removal Act of 1830 forced them from their home of New York. This is the tribe for which the uh, novel and subsequent film Last of the Mohicans was based on, kind of. The author bl- blended Mohican and Mohegan, so M O. H E G A N tribes into the Mohican tribe in the book all of these tribes relied heavily on wooded regions to hunt and fish a tradition that remains very popular according to my extensive research working at a sporting goods store now the uh, first Europeans to enter the area was Jean Nicolette he's French I'm assuming it's Jean instead of Jean and there's a painting of this that I (laughs) might be the greatest painting I've ever seen genocidal connotations aside this thing pictures him standing near a body of water firing two guns in the air (laughs) while an assortment of native native people are around him experiencing a vast array of different varying drastic reactions (laughs) it is wild jean nicolette was assigned by the governor of new france in 1634 to a peacekeeping mission to ease tensions between the ho-chunk and the huron tribes which would help positively influence their fur trade he traveled via boat through lake michigan which is a feat of its own honestly assuming he hugged the coast the entire time on that one he traveled through to Green Bay which he coined la baie des points or stinking bay i like that name green bay is quite the uh public relations twist. (laughs) French explorers took to the region establishing a trade post and the like was not a perfect relationship as tensions rose between the French and the Iroquois, the northern Great Lakes region resulting in the outbreak of the beaver wars which I am sorry to let you know that they are not wars between the great giant beavers and the French explorers but in my head they are now. Such great war name wasted on stupid Europeans. I hate it. This war caused a break in the French expanding into Wisconsin but they would returned by 1660. In 1665 a missionary named Claude Jean Alois entered the region and traveled through Wisconsin encountering various native tribes and evangelizing to them as missionaries are often wont to do. Through many of these small interactions, the French explorers and missionaries learned about the land, most importantly, the tales of the vast river to the west. Through the next decade, many expeditions occurred, notably the expansion of the various forts, especially in the northern region of what would be Wisconsin, hugging the shores of the Great Lake of Superior. The timing of this is interesting because a lot of these forts were being built around the same time that the salem witch trials were going on a thousand miles away so that's kind of a little juxtaposition of some historical facts in your brain the french encountered more troubles as the uh, fox tribe fought to keep them out of their lands which set off the fox wars which continued through the beginning quarter of the 18th century this was a precursor to the to more conflict that would follow in the ensuing French and Indian War where the pair would fight against the French settlers. The conflict spanned from 1754 to 1763 with the aid of American colonists, the British were able to expel the French from Green Bay and further out of the Wisconsin area at the war's conclusion. Following this, trappers, explorers, and settlers flocked to the region, either utilizing forts that had been set up previously or using these locations as just grounds for new ones. British occupation actually held no hostilities towards the French residents that lived there, so those existing settlements continued as before. Some slight changes to the vernacular of the region did happen, with the Stinky Bay changing to Green Bay, I guess, whatever, by British traders who noted the green tint to the water near the shore, but I'm gonna call it Stinky Bay from now on. I like that name, especially as a Lions fan, I I think that's perfect. Uh, Trades of furs was not the only thing to uh, boom during this time, as farming began to take hold in the region as well. Green Bay itself flourished in the burgeoning community at the latter half of the 18th century. Following the Revolutionary War, the US gained control of Wisconsin from Britain, but it wouldn't be until the War of 1812 that they actually cared about the territory. Before that, Wisconsin was part of the then known Northwest Territory and then the Indiana Territory until the War of 1812. The British actually maintained control of the trade in the region and then during the war the United States established forts and even fought and lost one battle in the state. The captured Fort Shelby was then renamed Fort McKay after the British Major who led the forces who captured it. Following the war the English just burnt it down in a bit of poor sportsmanship. No handshake after the game. rude the united states built fort crawford in the same place after that the war of 1812 was not the only thing that hindered any progress of further settlement and it was followed by two conflicts in the 19th century against the winnebago and black hawk wars respectively these wars were not fought for very long and they established an american settlers superiority in the region and gave way to their further settlement of the land in addition to the fruitful potential of the wood area. There's also a large opportunity for lead mining in the territory which was initially done by native people but eventually the white settlers would take the rights to this too by way of a few treaties and of course the wars I had mentioned before. This created a rush of people to the area to mine. continued to grow and then by the mid 19th century the territory was producing half of the country's lead supply mining also gave birth to the state's nickname as the miners would burrow in the ground during the winter instead of building an actual like living quarters for themselves which was odd to say the least (laughs) um people referred to them as having looked like badgers and so now that's that's why it's the badger state like isn't that weird it's not actually about Badgers. Who would have known? Not me until now. In the first part of the nineteenth century we also have Milwaukee, founded in large part by the efforts of a man named Solomon Juno, who visited the region in eighteen twenty. Milwaukee has certainly had its share of visitors. The French missionaries and explorers were coming here as early as the late sixteen hundreds to trade with Native Americans. Now you're probably gonna ask, hey, isn't milwaukee an indian name and then i'd say yes pete it is actually it's pronounced melewake which is algonquin word for the good land and then you're probably gonna ask why i turned into alice cooper in wayne's world (laughs) i i had to put it in i (laughs) i was like oh i gotta talk about milwaukee there's no reason why i shouldn't (laughs) i had i don't live there but how funny would it be just to include the wayne's world quote and if you don't know that quote we can't be friends. I'm sorry, I don't I don't to tell you. Milwaukee did grow substantially very fast in comparison to other places in the territory. It also gave way to more settlements in the area. but even those towns fought against one another. The Milwaukee Bridge war occurred in eighteen forty five when Byron Kilborn of Kilborn Town destroyed a new bridge being built across the Milwaukee River to create a dependency on his town from a different town so basically just greed conflict did not even last a full year and eventually new bridges were agreed upon and this led to the forming of milwaukee in 14 or 1846 the actual territory of wisconsin was established 10 years prior to the forming of milwaukee and encompassed a lot more than what it is now it originally stretched out to the missouri river up through what is north dakota but was shrunk down to the mississippi in 1838 while still holding quite a bit of northeastern minnesota in the change up the state was also trying to configure a state capital the idea was to use belmont a mining boom town, but then this was soon scrapped and the idea was to build a brand new town for the occasion which was just kind of cool so madison was established built and incorporated in 1856 and i don't know how common this is for new states or like when states were new but Isn't that fascinating? They just decided to specifically make a town for the capital, which you got to think that that means that it was laid out pretty good, right? I don't know how traffic is in Madison. So if you're from the area and you listen to this show, let me know because I have yet to visit. The state was officially accepted into the union in 1848. It's also enabled the University of Wisconsin to be founded that same year. Celebratory times were not had by all as the. 1849 gold rush of California, combined with the decline in quality and quantity of lead deposits, left the mining economy slumped in the state. 1854, following the Kansas-Nebraska Act, the Republican Party was actually created in, I'm gonna say Ripon, Wisconsin, at the uh, Little White Schoolhouse. In the civil war soldiers were drafted from the state which led to some anti-draft riots which is very understandable Ninety-one thousand plus troops served in the union from wisconsin many of them trained at camp randall which is the site of the university's football stadium in the 19th century agriculture particularly wheat farming played a significant role in wisconsin's economy however challenges such as soil depletion pests and adverse weather to a decline in wheat farming. Don't want to get any ergot poisoning in that cold winter on that wheat, right? Farmers in northern Wisconsin turned to cranberry cultivation while those in the south focused on tobacco. There's also a shift from wheat to dairy farming which became prominent due to the better suitability for the state's climate and soil. By 1915, Wisconsin became the leading producer of dairy products in the United States, a title that has held for a decade, the Cheese State, baby. They are, they are serious about their cheese. It's crazy. They're, there's like whole sections in grocery stores that's all cheese. And I've never experienced anything like that before in my life. Simultaneously, the brewing industry thrived in Wisconsin, driven by a lot of German immigrants and the destruction of Chicago's breweries in the Great Chicago Fire, Milwaukee became a brewing hub, hosting major companies like Miller, Pabst, Blatz, and Schlitz. Chippewa Falls or Chippewa Falls provided a source of water for the brewing of the Line and Kugel Brewing Company, which is, you know, just down the road from where I live now. The logging industry also flourished in Wisconsin's forested regions with Rivers used for transportation, however, logging faced challenges including the Peshtigo fire in 1871, the deadliest deadliest in US history. By the early 20th century, logging declined and the paper industry emerged in the Fox River Valley. The city I live in, Eau Claire, was founded in. 1856 but can be traced back to some of the treaties of the French and native population back in the day. The name of course is French. It's French for clear water. The Chippewa and Eau Claire River junctions create a uh, geography for the area. Eau Claire, like a lot of Wisconsin was a destination for many German and Northern European immigrants in the middle 19th century which explains why everyone here is so goddamn tall. Logging was a major economy for the early towns but soon it was too much for the local tree population and manufacturing Actually, switched to rubber, notably tires, at the turn of the 20th century. Rainminton Gillette started a rubber plant in 1917, which would change ownerships a few times before before Uniroyal bought it and then ran that factory until 1991. The building was bought by the United States government temporarily and during World War II, and it employed over 6,000 people during the conflict, which obviously dropped substantially after the war. The building is still there and that's actually like a uh, like a bunch of different businesses, rent out spaces in like the old rubber factory. It's kind of neat. Been there. Eau Claire itself grew rapidly and even had to annex Shawtown, a former lumber boom town in the 1930s, and two decades later it was even reaching the nearby town of Altoona. Today the city of Eau Claire features one major university, technical college, and campuses dedicated to The Mayo Clinic, which is headquartered in nearby Rochester, Minnesota. Some major inventions for the state. Serial killers, obviously. Not really, but it kind of does feel like it, right? No, no. Real inventions, contributions to the American society. Chris Farley, right? Willem Dafoe. I mean, can you ask for two better people? I'm not even joking. I love those two very much. They're great. Uh, Typewriters actually invented in a machine shop in milwaukee in 1874 the first mass-produced this is the caveat the first mass-produced steam-powered car invented by john wesley carhart in 1871 and no he's not the same carhart as the carhart carhart he uses one less t in his name so yeah kindergarten that's right german immigration introduced the concept which doesn't really surprise me because it's a very german name kindergarten like That's German all over the place. American Auto Racing uh, began it took place with that steam power car i mentioned in 1878 it was a 200 mile race that stretched across the state and took nine days to complete modern toilet paper with the rolls and such thank you and the Sherman bears probably are super pumped and then one thing i'm not surprised by is the turbo tap system which enables fast pouring of beer of course you know this the state is just one giant alcoholic so obviously a faster method of pouring beer would be invented here anyway so that's it. That's the history of the places I've lived, you know, places I've called home, and more accurate places I've received license plates in. Uh, this was a lot more information than I thought, but actually I think it's quite fascinating to learn about some of these places that we visit, drive through, you know, and live in, in a more in-depth way. If you're listening to this and you live in any of the p- places mentioned or have been there, you know, did you learn anything? Did it, like, was any of this new? I know when I grew up and was in like school there's like some very like limited history of the places we would visit on field trips i remember going in downtown carney and like pointed out one of the oldest surviving buildings in the town like that's pretty cool like stuff like that i don't know Obviously history in general just fascinates me. So (laughs) maybe this, maybe this episode is not for everybody. I'm perfectly comfortable with that, but a lot of information, a lot of facts, like just kind of thrown at you. So let me know what you think. Um, And I don't know if you actually learned that much about me if you didn't already know some of these things, I guess maybe you did, but um, hopefully you got a little bit better of a grasp of uh, you know, who I am as a person, maybe. Maybe this'll make you appreciate the show more. I don't know. I just I just like the idea of giving people who listen to me and don't know who I am, like a little bit of like little backstory. Not like I'm not gonna sit here and rant and rave about my entire life for you. But, you know, it is nice to know about the people that you listen to and dedicate and give hours your life to i don't listen to you but you listen to me so you know so there's that <laughs> yeah anyway some honorable mentions of places that i've lived but i lived in for a little bit but not long enough for me to dedicate any time to research places like pensacola florida yeah i was only there for a few months Lamore, california same thing grand island hastings omaha mccool junction i mentioned also Another honorable mention, the USS Theodore Roosevelt, CVN 71, baby. I lived on that thing for eight months, and that was part of the time that I was living in Whidbey Island. I was on (laughs) deployment, but, you know, that's why it's a technicality. I felt like I just needed to give it a shout out, because I did call that place home for longer than some people live in some places, I guess, so whatever so thank you for listening to this i hope that your year is you know fortuitous and i hope it's it's great for all of us i look forward to continue to teach all of you guys something new every week you know i would love it if you you know you learn something share us with somebody if you live in any of these places definitely be like hey friend people i know people i love check this out like this is maybe you don't live there maybe whatever share with people Engage in the Facebook group. Send me some topic suggestions if you have an idea. This came from the brain of somebody who listens to this show. So in that vein, you know, please send send forward any ideas you might have. Allow me to explore parts of history that I may not consider because that's what happened here today. So thank you again, Hannah, for giving me this idea. And thank you all for listening to me, giving me your spare time or your work day. You have a great week and a great year. And I will talk to you next week. Bye.